Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Unfounded Podcast, everyone. My name is Christopher Turner. I am your host. Apologies for the delay getting this out to you guys. I know some of you uh, saw my poster on my, my Facebook page about coming on it, too. Right as I started to do that, tried to initiate the YouTube stream, I had an issue uh, with the uh, XSplit broadcaster that I use here. So I had to kind of uh, redo some of my my scenes here so you're not going to have any of the cool transitions and stuff that I had before. But we'll get them back here soon. No worries. It's all kind of water under the bridge because today I want to talk about um, it's a really fascinating topic and something I've been uh, I've been kind of researching the last couple of days and this is going to be a little bit different um, style podcast than we usually do because most of the time I don't try to do a lot of preparation in terms of laying out articles things like that prior because I want to do that with you in real time but. The topic that I'm going to bring up right now <clears throat> is, is really complicated. Uh, also, heads up to most of you, the topics we're going to be dealing with today um, are highly religious and spiritual in nature, and they're also very conspiratorial in nature. Some of them are, okay? So um, take everything I say today with a grain of salt, right? But um, there's some strange coincidences going on right now at a global level, I think at a societal level and also at the individual level in each of our lives. I'm going to make sure I got everything running here right, guys. Sorry for the delay there. We're good. Okay. What I want to talk about today is the Christmas star. Now, many of you may not know what the Christmas star is, or you've probably heard the term before. But the Christmas star was originally a reference to the star that the three wise men... Were the four wise men? How many wise men were there? Let's find out. How many wise men were there? I think three. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. Sorry for that little delay there. I'm going to keep you up here on the screen so you can just kind of see what I'm looking at today, all right? Because I have a lot of articles to go over. Um... There's some connections here that I think are strange, and I'm, I want to kind of try to pull them out and pull it apart and connect it to what we've talked about in previous episodes, okay? Because there's some oddities going on in the world, like I just said. The Christmas star. It was a, uh, it was, in the Bible, it was the star the, uh, that, that the three wise men followed to Jerusalem, or Bethlehem, the, the place of Jesus' birth. And for a long time, um, historians and theologians have been trying to identify what that occurrence was in the night sky. What star were they talking about? Because in the biblical stories, it's, it's an, it's a occurrence that isn't always there, right? So it's not like they were following the North star. It's a, it was a bright light that appeared in the night sky, but didn't stay there. Right. And so I, I can't remember exactly how many days and nights they followed the star, but it was stationary and fixed there for a set period of time. And they followed it in the story all the way to the place of Jesus' birth, which is where they found him lying in the manger and they bring gifts of gold and myrrh and, and, and incense, right? So the Christmas star um, is actually most scientists, astrologists, astronomers, theologians believe that there's some connection here to an actual uh, astronomical alignment of sorts 
that being the alignment of Saturn and Jupiter. Uh, this article I have pulled up for you right now is from CBS News, uh, or I'm sorry, NBC News, excuse me. All of these articles are going to be posted in the show notes descriptions if you want to look at them for yourself. This is not my work on these. So anything that I, it's not my work, I'm going to show you on the screen, okay? Uh, so that it's properly cited and you understand uh, what, what we're looking at here, okay? Um, but it's going to be a lot of reading as well, just heads up. All right, so let's start off with NBC News. A Christmas star will be the closest visible conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in 800 years. The conjunction of the planetary giants will look like one large star on the winter solstice, December 21st, 2020, in the southwest sky. Here's kind of a visual depiction of what that would look like, the, the magnitude of it. Let's go ahead and read a little bit about it. The great conjunction of 2020 will brighten the darkest day of the year as the two giant planets of our solar system draw closer together in the night sky than they have been in centuries. By chance, the day that Jupiter and Saturn will appear closest for Earth-based stargazers is December 21st, the winter solstice, which is the longest night of the year in the northern hemisphere. The double planet view is also known by some astronomers as the Christmas star because of a belief that the biblical tale of the star of Bethlehem could have been a planetary conjunction. Although around 2000 years ago, Venus and Jupiter were closest, not Jupiter and Saturn, as is the case in the Christmas star of 2020. So this is kind of an argument against the idea I was just laying out. The last time the two planets were so close was 1623. It's a long time ago, right? But stargazing conditions at that time meant that the astronomical event likely was not seen by Earthlings. The last time such a close pairing was observable to the naked eye was 1226. So this is an extremely, extremely rare, something like every once every 800 years occurrence. And what happens is in this alignment of Saturn and Jupiter, there's an appearance of what looks like a bright star in the sky. If you've ever seen um, a planet in the night sky, if you've ever you know, gone stargazing and you see you know, Mars or Venus or Mercury, whatever, Jupiter, whatever planets visible at the time, you'll notice that they're brighter and more noticeable than the other stars in the sky. If you live in a city, a lot of times the only ones you'll see are the planets and like the very brightest stars, right? And so... Um, if you think back in biblical times, if you think back in ancient times, there would be more significance. It would be more obvious because there wasn't light pollution, right? There's these, the significance, the magnitude of each star would be more easy to identify, right? Anyway, the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter together in this specific alignment, when it's visible, produces something like a superstar, right? Something like the a bright, an extremely bright star in the night sky that's kind of hard to ignore. And especially when it's this rare, you have to think that there's eight generations of people, nine generations of people between the last time this happened. Nine of you living, right? Now, this also relates, and I'm going to talk about astrology in this. I'm going to talk about paganism. I'm going to talk about um, Christianity as we are right now, right? I'm going to try to relate these things because they connect in odd ways. And so Saturn and Jupiter... There's more meaning behind those spheres, celestial spheres, than just, you know, the names we associate with them. Those, those names were given to the planets, those planets, because of the significance of the archetypes in our culture. What do I mean by that? Let me try to find my next page here. This is what where the term Jupiter comes from. Jupiter, this is from Wikipedia. From the Proto-Italic, you see it right there, also known as Jove, is the god of the sky and thunder and king of the gods in ancient Roman re religion and mythology. 
Jupiter was the chief deity of Roman state religion throughout the Republican and Imperial eras, until Christianity became the dominant religion of the empire. In Roman mythology, he negotiates with Numa Pompilius, the second king of Rome, to establish principles of Roman religion such as offering and sacrifice. It's very interesting. Those are important, those ideas. Jupiter is usually thought to have originated as an aerial god. His identifying implement is the thunderbolt, and his primary sacred angel is the eagle, which held pre uh, precedence over other birds in the taking of auspices and became one of the most common symbols of the Roman army. This is very common if you watch any uh, historical Roman mo like movies about ancient Rome. You'll see the, the sigil of the eagle is um, the figurehead of the eagle was always carried uh, was was very sacred in, in Roman culture. Right, and um, this is one of the reasons why the two emblems were often combined to represent the god in the form of an eagle holding in its claws a thunderbolt, frequently seen on Greek and Roman coins. As the sky god, he was a divine witness to oaths, the sacred trust on which justice and good government depend. Many of his functions were focused on the Capitol Capitoline Hill. Right, let's see what that is. The Capitolium or Capitoline Hill between the Ferrum and Compass Meritus is one of the seven hills of Rome. Okay, this is where the 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 um, uh, what do they call it? Those large places like that, those uh, altars to the gods, right? Um, where the citadel was located in the capital of Triad. He was the central guardian of a state with Juno and Minerva. His sacred tree was the oak. The Romans regarded Jupiter as the equivalent of the Greek god Zeus. And in Latin literature and Roman art, the myths and icon iconography of Zeus are adapted under the name Lupiter. In the Greek-influenced tradition, Jupiter was the brother of Neptune and Pluto, the Roman equivalents of Poseidon and Hades, respectively. Each, pre each presided over one of the three realms of the universe, sky, the waters, and the underworld. The Italic Diaspiter, Diaspiter was also a sky god who manifested himself in the daylight, usually identified with Jupiter. All right, so that's kind of a description of what Jupiter is. Now let's go on to what Saturn is. Saturn was a god in ancient Roman religion as well, a character in Roman mythology. He was described as a god of generation, disillusion, plenty, wealth, agriculture, periodic renewal, and liberation. Saturn's mythological reign was depicted as a golden age of plenty and peace after the Roman conquests of Greece. He was conflated with the Greek titan Kronos, becoming known as a god of time. Saturn's consort was his sister Ops, with whom his fa he fathered Jupiter, Neptune, Pluto, Juno, Ceres, and Vesta. Saturn was especially celebrated during the festival of Saturnalia each December, perhaps the most famous of the Roman festivals, a time of feasting, role reversals, free speech, gift giving, and revelry. The temple of Saturn in the Roman Forum housed the state treasury and archives, and the Roman Republic of the Roman Republic and the early Roman Empire, the planet Saturn and the day of the week Saturday are both named after and were associated with him. So what we're starting to see here, folks, is that there's a deeper connection that you see historically in some of the greatest civilizations that have come before Western civilization here. You see in, in the Roman Empire, you see in the Greek uh uh, states that, that there was a reverence for deity, as there is in most culture, but that there's an oddity in the way the significance of these things align between religions. 
that how odd is it that the f- the formative story of Christianity itself and I would argue the western idea the, the western world itself is based on following the Christmas star to find the savior and it just so happens that the most likely means actual means of that star that guiding light appearing is through the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. And that Jupiter and Saturn in Roman and Greek mythology are something like some of the highest gods in the plethora of gods. That's odd, right? That we're going to have a conjunction like that on the 21st here. And we're going to be able to see it. Just as the three wise men were able to see it over 2,000 years ago. It gets weirder. Because as I was kind of thinking about this, uh, what brought this up is a combination of some of the tarot readings I've done, some of the astrology that I look into as well, um, and then also some of the YouTube channels I watch. I was watching Tim Poole interview uh, Alex Jones last night. And many of you, right when I say Alex Jones, might be like, oh boy, right? Um, I would. It was a very interesting interview. He's done one with Joe Rogan as well, and I would recommend watching him. He is very out there, but he talks about some of this stuff in depth, about some of the stuff we're going to get into here. And so he is kind of an important figure to reference because I think, a, I think that it's very hard to argue that 2020 hasn't been a year for the record books in many different ways, but not necessarily in a positive way. There's this chaotic aspect to today that is oddly like out of place in the modern world. It's like a chaos that we've forgotten about. And then I think it's obvious that that chaos is now seeped back into the world or its existence is refusing to be hidden anymore in 2020. And that this whole year has been kind of a assault, I think, at a fundamental level on the individual, at a deeper level on the soul, at a deeper level on the existence of a period, right? What I wanted to figure out was, okay, if we have this celestial aligning that seems to happen uh, very rarely, but for us occurs in recorded history, then we can look back throughout history to try to figure out what was going on in those time frames. What was going on the last time these stars were aligned, right? I stumbled across some pretty interesting evidence based on that. Let me see if I can find it here first for you. So, what I looked up was I I tried to go through and figure out when was Jesus' actual birth, right? And from what I could find, uh, most most sources said it occurred between 4 and 6 BC. So what I did is went into Wikipedia or Google and tried to f- type in, you know, what happened in what was the significant event in the year 4, 5 and 6 BC? What was happening right then? Right? 
And I didn't find anything specifically that popped out here out of out of these Wikipedia articles. There's some interesting coincidences of, of uh, kind of some significant figures here. Um, it does mention at the bottom of these multiple times that this is kind of thought to be possibly the birth of Jesus, you know, the, the year of the birth of Jesus, that kind of thing. And John the Baptist, that's what it says right here. Um, and this would be in 5 BC. Um, there's also a very interesting uh, correlation between Cleopatra, her death, I believe, in 6 BC, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yes, Cle Cleopatra, which is the Cleopatra of Egypt that we're familiar with, I believe. Yes, um, died in 6 BC. So it's a kind of an odd coincidence um, of, of significant figures you probably don't usually associate with each other, that they lived around the same time kind of a thing, right? Um, here at the very bottom here, I want to read this reference to you in 6 BC because this, this refers to what we're, we're, we're researching right now. So, uh, let's see here. Star of Wonder. Ten years ago, his conclusion, uh, Michael Molnar announced ten years ago that his conclusion that the Star of Bethlehem was in fact a double eclipse of Jupiter in a rare ast astrological conjunction that occurred in Aries on March 20th, 6 BC. And again on April 17th, 6 BC. Mr. Molnar believes the Roman astrologers would have interpreted the double eclipse as a signifying the birth of a divine king in Judea. However, astronomical software such as Stellarium shows that on March 20th, the oculation of Jupiter by the moon could not be seen from Rome, as the moon passed by the planet without obscuring it. Furthermore, the event on April 17th began when Jupiter was 38 degrees above the horizon at 2 p.m. in daylight, so it is extremely unlikely that this event would have been seen either. So there's a lot of argument against the existence of this, basically based on modeling, right, where this should have been in the sky. Uh, but there's also an odd correlation between kind of what what we are, if we look at the Bible as anecdotal evidence, then there was something in the sky there that wasn't always there. And that what, from what we know, modern day, through uh, astronomy and exploring space and our understanding of physics is that, that the only way something like that could, could happen would be either one, like a comet of some sort, some kind of uh, transient body coming by the earth uh, for and, and that which I think was what was popularly ar was usually argued for most of the time uh, prior to this theory or this that there's some kind of alignment conjunction between uh, the celestial bodies in our 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 celestial neighborhood neighborhood right and that that con that congruence is what produces the star so it's kind of up to interpretation and there's no way to really define exactly what they were seeing but it's very interesting how much these different topics relate, how much Jupiter, Saturn, the alignments of Jupiter and Saturn and the ideas based, those archetypes, those are based on in Roman and Greek mythology, that those relate to something like the highest of the gods, which is exactly what the idea of Jesus was, was the singular God embodied, right? Very weird congruencies there. But that I also wanted to see, um, like I said, what was happening around here, a little bit more um, sp specifics on like the p political Landscape. What was going on politically um, in 6 BC? So I stumbled across this article um, about Herod, I believe. King Herod. I can find it. It's somewhere here. I keep on, like, jumping over it. Yeah. 
Yes. Okay, here. I'm sorry for the delays here, guys. And for audio listeners, this is probably going to be a better one to try to watch if you can, because there's a lot of visual that I'm doing here. Um, a lot of stuff I'm reading through, okay? But if you're still, it's still meant to be enjoyed in whatever fashion you, you prefer. So anyway, um, this is a uh, article by abc.net. Um, it's written by Philip Jenkins. And it's uh, from 2015. It's about five, six years old. But it's called A Most Violent Year, The World Into Which Jesus Was Born. I'm going to start down here in the year of crisis. Let me go ahead and start at the beginning. Let's just go ahead and read it. Scholars differ on the exact birth date of Jesus of Nazareth, though a fair consensus holds that it was not in the year one. Many favor a date in or around 4 BC, and for the sake of argument, let us take that as accurate. If so, the birth occurred during a near or truly dreadful time in history of what was already a troubled and turbulent land. Although these events are familiar to scholars, they are not at all well known by non-specialists. This is is unfortunate because memories of this crisis certainly shaped memories and perceptions for decades afterwards and conditioned attitudes during Jesus's lifetime. If we do not understand those conflicts, we are missing the prehistory of the earliest Jesus movement. It's very important. So obscure are these events that they do not even bear a convenient name. Suggested names include the War of Varus and the First Judean War. The Archelian Revolt might be another candidate. None of these names, though, is terribly satisfactory, and emphasizing Varus really underplays the extensive history that occurred before this direct intervention. Briefly, King Herod the Great died in 4 BC amid political turmoil and religious unrest. Immediately following his death, the country entered a period of revolution and violence that, in many ways, foreshadows the very well-known events of 66 AD, the famous Jewish war uh, commemorated by Joseph Josephus. Although On a much smaller scale than the latter catastrophe, the earlier crisis demands to be remembered for multiple reasons. I want here to describe the events of the crisis and then suggest their long-term significance. My main source is chapter 17 of the Jewish Antiquities of Josephus, which has provided the material for the multiple modern accounts. There is a course of substantial overlap with the earlier chapters of the same author's Jewish war. So he's got a first-hand account here is what he's pulling from. The year of crisis. By 4 BC, Herod the Great was coming to the end of a long career that was bloody and paranoid even by the standards of Hellenistic monarchies. He ruled through tactics of mass terror and widespread surveillance that sometimes sound like a foretaste of the Stalin years. Herod had killed multiple members of his family in the year BC, 4 BC, was in the process of trying to execute his son Antip- Antipater for alleged treason. He also systematically wiped out all male claimants from the old Hasmonean ro- royal dynasty, so getting away from uh, eliminating his political enemies. No matter how violent, palace intrigues, need not have a wider public impact, but Herod's growing paranoia and mental illness was becoming a scandal among other rulers and was presumably well known to any educated member of the Jewish elite. The question then arose, what happened when Herod dies? For 150 years, Jewish Palestine had been, had been deeply divided between warring factions, whose conflicts had been kept in check by Herod's equal opportunity reign of terror. During Herod's reign, also, domestic conflicts found a new focus in the response to Roman overlordship. Herod was a Jewish king, but he had to rule as a Mediterranean monarch, supporting the public symbols and spectacular performances that had in, and that, that entailed. Such acti- activities outraged religious nationalist opinion as an egregious display of idol idolatry. Might Herod's death mark the rebirth of a purified and independent Jewish state? The crisis reached a perilous new phase when two Jewish activists, Matthias and Judas, destroyed the imperial eagle that Herod had ordered erected at the temple gates. We heard about what the eagle's significance is, right? Reportedly, they did this on the strength of a false rumor that Herod lay dying, as that a new era was at hand. 
Herod responded furiously, burning alive the two, men per the two main perpetrators and killing their accomplices. However, his death very shortly afterward meant that he could not take the wider vengeance that he perhaps would have done earlier. Herod's death aroused hopes of a new regime under his successor, Archelaus, Archelaus, that's it, yeah, who was then just 19, so very young. The people assembled to demand that the new ruler punish those who had been favorites of Herod and that the high priesthood should be given to a new incumbent. I don't know if you're drawing any congruencies between what's happening in the world right now and what you're reading. I'm reading here you now, but it's a little freaky to me. They also wanted their taxes reduced. Archelaus was just justly terrified of open revolution, all the more so given the approach of Passover when the city would be filled with outsiders from the countryside. He ordered his forces to watch out for open sedition, but the resulting intervention went far beyond rounding up the usual suspects. But those that were seditious, seditious on account of those teachers of the law irritated the people by the noise and clamors they used to encourage the people in their designs. So they made an assault upon the soldiers and came up to them and stoned the great part of them. Although some of them ran away wounded and their captain among them. And when they, they had, had thus done, they returned to the sacrifices which were already in their hands. Now Archelaus thought that there was no way to preserve the entire government but by cutting off those who had made this attempt upon him. So he sent out the whole army upon them and sent the horsemen to prevent that, had their tents without the temple, the temple from assisting those that were within the temple and to, kill such as, and to kill such as ran away from the footmen when they thought themselves out of danger, which horsemen slew 3,000 men while the rest went to the neighboring mountains." the slaughter he's describing as so often in ancient sources it would take a brave historian to swear that the number killed was 3,000 no more no less but we can confidently speak of a significant massacre Archelaus immediately issued a proclamation canceling the Passover feast so this is an intervening at a, at a government level with religious activity similar disasters followed at Pentecost Pentecost a countless multitude flocked in from Galilee from Idumea from Jericho and from Perea beyond the Jordan, but it was the native population of Judea itself, which both in numbers and ardor was preeminent. The mob besieged the Roman garrison, leading to another bloody battle in which the Jews were alarmingly undaunted by the Roman emperors, or enemies, excuse me. Conflict also raged far beyond Jerusalem, according to Josephus. Now at this time, there were 10,000 other disorders in Judea, 10,000, which were like tumults because a great number put themselves into a warlike posture, either out of hopes of gain to themselves or out of enmity to the Jews. And now Judea was full of robberies. And as the several companies of the seditious lighted upon anyone to head them, he was created a king immediately in order to do mischief to the public. They were in some small, they were in some small measure indeed and in small matters hurtful to the Romans. But the murders they committed upon their own people lasted a long while. We're going to go back over this because this is really freaky how much this aligns with what's going on here in the modern day. Let's keep reading before we do that. No less than three unrelated popular leaders emerged to claim the role of popular king. One was Judas, son of Hezekiah, a bandit leader killed by Herod. Judas took the city of Sephorus, or Sephorus, seizing its arms and wealth and distributing them to his followers. Another would be King Simon, who burnt down the royal palace at Jericho and plundered what was left in it. He also set fire to many other king's houses and several palaces of the country and utterly destroyed them and permitted those that were with him to take what was left in them for a prey. And he would have done greater things unless care had been taken to repress him immediately. The last of these kings was a shepherd named Athronges, whose main qualification for office seems to have been his unusual height. 
The Romans duly called for help from the governor of Syria based on Antioch. He brought in a very substantial force of two legions plus allied auxiliary forces among whom was Aretas, king of Arabia, Petraea. The crisis of 4 BC offered a prequel, a draft script of so many more horrors of the coming century. And that was the world in which Jesus was born. You see a king, you see a King Herod, a monarch of sorts, and tyrannical leader. You see this um, reversion to government rule. You see a populace rising up. You see protest, versions of protest in this. You see looting, versions of looting in this, robbery, as they described it. You see murder. You see violence against the police forces. You see police forces becoming violent against the people. You see wars, tribal wars popping up in the tens of thousands, as they described it in here, all over the land, based on a greed, as they described. Now at this time, there were 10,000 other disorders in Judea, which were like tumults, because a great number put themselves into a warlike posture, either out of hopes of gain to themselves or out of enmity to the Jews. So that what people were defining themselves, it was based on group identity. It was based on greed, if nothing else. That there was two separate ways in which this chaos was occurring, and they're identifying it right here. Something like ego, hatred. Ego and hatred. And what sprang from it was violence. A sort of wildfire spreading. And that this is the world in which the Christmas star came into being. It was Jupiter and Saturn aligned. It's getting weirder, huh? Hey guys. <laughs> Maybe you want to look at me for a second instant and not have to read for the whole episode. There's a congruency here. There's an alignment, a resonance. We've talked about how at a fundamental level, this was a while ago, everything, if you break it down, gets to this idea of energy. I just read or listened to a theory. I, didn't, I don't know what it's called here, but it's something like energy is the fundamental building block. It's a new theory. The funding, fundamental building block of all of this is energy itself, and the energy itself is comprised of waves, you know, a series of troughs and peaks. And that the old saying, as above, so below, I just uh, posted a picture on my Instagram a couple days ago of this. It's an old um, Norris mythology, I believe, as above, so below, saying it, it's a picture of a tree with a reflection of the tree below it, right? The idea being that there's this repeating idea in nature that as you zoom down and you zoom out, what you'll get is this repetition. 
something like fractal quality within life. Waves. And that this isn't only true on the individual level, it's true as you broaden out as well. Just like the idea I'm just describing here, that it's something intricate and simple. But at the grandest level, this is still true as well. So that we do have this idea of history repeating itself. But not in the way we like to think about it. Not in that the events themselves reoccur exactly as they occurred before. Something like the energetic foundation on which those events happened reoccurs. Not out of, like, it's out of necessity. Because it's a fundamental reality within nature of existence itself. It's one of the reasons why you can align with nature and the universe. It's one of the reasons why you can get this awe-inspiring feeling standing and looking at the Grand Canyon or being alone in the wilderness by yourself or gazing at the stars. You're aligning with that ultimate frequency the ups, the downs, the troughs, the peaks. And that what's happening right now and what happened 2,000 years ago with the original Christmas star is a similar energetic field of sorts, underlying foundation that served as a setting and stage through which the salvation of humanity could take place. (laughs) Everybody's so scared right now. Everybody, it's very hard to see how this isn't going to erupt in chaos. Just yesterday, the Texas lawsuit that had, I think, at, at the time that it actually hit the Supreme Court, almost 44 states supporting it. The Supreme Court of the United States declined to even hear the argument. Which I have to say, before this went to that, I was trying to think of what the outcome, the best outcome could be. And that was the worst one. Because... People who feel voiceless, they act in these ways. They burn down the royal palaces. (laughs) They plunder. They take. Because it's like, like if you're not going to listen to us, we're not going to listen to you. That's kind of how people treat it. And that this is very... We're in, a, we're in this time. This is a ground-shattering time. That after that decision, I believe it was at uh, Texas AG or Texas... Gov- it was one of the political leaders in Texas came out with a quote stating something to effect of if the Supreme Court won't uphold the laws and the regulations of the Constitution as was intended by the founders of the United States then there should be a grouping of states that band together in order to create a more perfect union through which that can take place. It's a very beautiful way to describe the dissolution of the United States as we know it. 
that unfortunately we've gotten to a place where half of the community in this United States feels disenchant uh, disenfranchised every four years. It just goes back and forth and back and forth. That there's this growing idea and sentiment inside the United States that there probably, maybe it is better if these two identities learn to live apart. That that's what's happening right now. That's the most current event right now. There's a deeper connection between Saturn and Jupiter. And the chaos that we're experiencing right now, I think. And this is going to be where the podcast diverges into slightly more conspiratorial land. So get your tinfoil hats out. <laughs> it's going to focus more on Saturn and the significance of Saturn in the beliefs of many modern political figures, I believe, and, and uh, from what we can tell in the beliefs of some of our, our most secret organizations. As I described here, Saturn was kind of identified as Let me find it here. The position of Saturn's festival in the Roman calendar led to this association with concepts of time, especially a temporal transition of the new year. In the Greek tradition, Kronos was sometimes conflated with Cronus, time. Chrono clock, right? And his devouring of his children taken as an allegory for the passing of generations, so that time devours generations, right? That Saturn has this child-devouring quality at a fundamental level, which is a weird quality, but it's something like the classical, like Roman and Greek characters were not um, gods. Have this quality of being almost like anti-heroes in a way, where they have good and bad qualities, and that. With Saturn being associated with Kronos, Kronos, this um, is the personification of time in a pre-Socratic philosophy and later literature, right? So it's like it's like Saturn is time, and that time, because we are finite, eats all things, right? So that there's this devouring quality with Saturn, consuming. The figure of Saturn is one of the most complex in Roman religion. Refrain from discussing Saturn. Uh, G. Dumazil refrained from discussing Saturn in his work on Roman religions, on the grounds oh, sorry, of insufficient knowledge. Conversely, however, his follower Dominique Briquil has attempted a thorough interpretation of Saturn, utilizing Dumazil's three functional theory of Indo-European religion, taking the ancient testimonies and workflow. Okay, that's kind of. This might be a little bit too wheezy for us to continue on that 
aspect, but the point I was trying to get to, I think I found there, it, it relates to Kronos, time, the idea of the devourer. Now, Saturn, there's this argument, and it's a little bit more conspiratorial, that Saturn has an association with Satan. That there's an association between Saturn, between um, the traits of the astrological sign of Capricorn and the figure in Christianity of Satan himself. Now, one of those reasons being is this devouring quality. There's like a control aspect to it too, that time controls all things, right? Um, the supremacy of that, right? There's a logic-based mindset that it's associated with as well that comes from more of the satanic archetype. But that you can see in the idea of a clock, right? A, qu a clock is mathematic by definition associated with time, right? So it's, it's a linear progression logic itself is what Saturn is. But that logic itself has also, and we've gone before this over this before, is associated with the figure of Lucifer, the angel of Lucifer, not Satan, the pre-fall uh, Lucifer. That Lucifer in God's angel uh, kingdom of angels was considered to be the highest, his favorite, the most beautiful, also associated with beauty, physical beauty but also intellect, the most cunning, coy, mischievous as well. All of the traits that go along with the intellect, good and bad, right? That this association is also connected as you can just kind of draw the lines with Saturn in some way in Greek myth and Roman mythology, that it even goes deeper than that. That there's a figure named Baal that is very kind of obscure, but it's a, it's a, I'm going to try to read about it. It's associated with uh, a cult from Canaan, which is a, is a, a group of people that lived during the times of Moses. And uh, the Canaanites were documented as living in kind of this, they were this desert people, right? That the um, Israelites, when cast out of Egypt, when they were in the desert, uh, came across these Canaanites and intermingled with them. And that the story of Moses, the most famous story of Moses is Moses' journey, or his uh, revelations on Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, right? This moral code, which was gifted to human beings by God himself, that the gift occurred when Moses went to Mount Sinai through some kind of intuitive hit, communicated with what he envisioned as a burning bush, uh, and was received this download of data, of information, something like, you know, a morality code, which then he brought down to the Israelites. But that in the story of Moses, when, when he returns from his, his visions and, and his, his, uh, his experience with God himself, that when he comes down the mountain, what he comes upon is the Israelites worshiping a golden calf, as I was described in the Bible. That the Canaanites, which is what I'm about to read to you here now, had a different set of gods 
and that the Israelites had been let out of, of, you know, slavery itself by Yahweh, as they referred to him, which was the idea of a singular God, that this was what was preached by Moses when he was telling the pharaohs to, you know, let his people go. It was this idea of a singular God, not a multi, uh, I forget what the actual term is, but when there's multiple gods, right? It's a, it doesn't matter, right? You get what I'm saying. The, the Canaanites, I'm just going to read to you here real quick. When the Israelites entered Canaan, they found a land of farmers, not shepherds. This is after their journey, kind of the end, getting towards the end of their journey through the desert. They were in the desert for, I think, what, was it 40 years? Something like that, it says in the Bible. But the, when the Israelites entered Canaan, they found a land of farmers, not shepherds, as they had been in the wilderness. The land was fertile beyond anything the Hebrew nomads had ever seen. The Canaanites attributed this fertility to their god Baal. And that is, that is where the Israelites' problems began. Could the God who had led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness also provide fertile, fertile farms in the promised land? Before I go on, guys, here, this is from The World We Know, and it's by Ray Vander Lane. All right. Uh, I have all, again, I have all these um, linked in the episode descriptions. Uh, could the God who had led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness also provide fertile farms in the promised land? Or would the fertility God of Canaan have to be honored? So there's this clashing that happens between the ideologies, the religious ideologies of, of the Israelites and the Canaanites, their beliefs. So that you have the Israelites coming up to the Canaanites saying, hey, there's only one real God. And the Canaanites saying, hey, yeah, look at where we live, man. Look at how much, look at how much we have. Look at how much, you know, how fertile we are. And what we do is worship Baal. And you're walking through the desert and you're asking us for help. So who should you really be worshiping? That's the conversation that's going on here, right? That they're describing. It's very interesting. An intense battle began for the minds and hearts of God's people. They took of Judges. The book of Judges records the ongoing struggle, the Israelites' attraction to and worship of the Canaanite gods. God's disciplinary response, the people's repentance, and God's merciful forgiveness until the next time the Israelites reached for Baal instead of Yahweh. Under the kings, this spirited, spiritual battle continued. By the time of Ahab and Jezebel, the fertility cults appeared to have the official sanction of Israel's leaders. Ahab, with his wife's encouragement, built a temple to Baal at his capital, Samaria. All the while, prophets like Elijah, Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, thundered the Yahweh that Yahweh alone deserved the people's allegiance. It took the Assyrian destruction of Israel and the Babylonian captivity of Judea or Judah to convince the Israelites that there is only one omnipotent God. So that the, the Israelites weren't convinced of their singular God, that they when they looked into the external world for examples of how their singular God would be represented, what they found was that these multi-theistic kind of religions uh, seemed to be working better, I guess is what they were, is, is the purpose, right? This struggle to be, had, they had more physical proof, right, of their belief. This struggle to be totally committed to God is of vital importance to us today as well. We don't think of ourselves as idol worshipers yet. We struggle to serve God alone in every part of our lives. So he's going to get a little bit more into his religious views there, right? But let me go ahead and read you about Baal, Canaan's gods. This is the main god of, of Canaan. Uh, also that uh, many of the uh, disciples um, there are letters from the disciples to, I believe, is the Canaanites, if I'm not mistaken, in the Bible as well. Um, I believe Paul writes to the Canaanites. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I'd have to look it up. Um, Conan, uh, Can Conan's, Canaan's gods, 
involved. The earliest deity recognized by the peoples of the ancient Near East was the creator god El. His mistress, the fertility god Ashira, gave birth to many gods, including a powerful god named Baal. Baal means lord. There appears to have been only one Baal, who was manifested in lesser balls at different places and times. Over the years, Baal became the dominant deity and the worship of El faded. So kind of this idea of there's this idea of, of distilling into a supremacy of gods. Like there's, when you have a ton of gods then there's this hierarchy that's created and there has to be somebody at the top, just like everything else in our world. Right. And so the, there's this distillation that happened throughout the ages where, where the specificity of the God seemed to the premacy of the God, you know, people arguing over which one was more potent, um, that distills over time to where you get to like eventually one or two or three gods that seem supreme. And that's kind of the process that he's describing here. Baal won his dominance by defeating the other deities. So this, the stories usually support this kind of killing or incorporation of the other gods into themselves, taking on the attributes of those gods as well, including the god of the sea, the god of storms, also of rain, thunder, and lightning, and the god of death. Baal's victory over death was thought to be repeated each year when he returned from the land of death, underworld, bringing rain to renew the earth's fertility. Very deeply connected with the idea of Mother Nature, too. Hebrew culture viewed the sea as evil and destructive. So Baal's promise to prevent storms and control the sea, as well as his ability to produce abundant harvests, made him attractive to the, to the Israelites. It's hard to know why Yahweh's people failed to see that he alone had the power over these things. Possibly their desert origins led them to question God's sovereignty over fertile lands. All right. So... Baal is portrayed as a man with the head and horns of a bull, an image similar to that of biblical accounts. His right hand, sometimes both hands, is raised, and he holds a lightning bolt, signifying both destruction and fertility. Baal has also been portrayed seated on a throne, possibly as the king or lord of the gods. Right, so there's this... Um, Let's go ahead and read about their cultural practices real quick, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move on from this. Baal's worshippers appeased him by offering sacrifices, usually animals such as sheep or bulls, which is why the, the golden calf. Uh, some scholars believe that the Canaanites also sacrificed pigs, and that God prohibited his people from eating pork in part, of, in part to prevent this horrible cult from being established among them. So that's maybe one of the reasons why Judaism um, kosher eating is a part of the Bible. At times of crisis, Baal's followers sacrificed their children, apparently the firstborn of the community, to gain personal prosperity. Child sacrifice. Saturn, what we just talked about Saturn, eating the children, time, eating all children, right? This is where the connection is here. Apparently the firstborn of the community to gain personal prosperity. There's this idea of necessary sacrifice, bloodletting in these ideas. The Bible called this practice detestable. God specifically appointed the tribe of Levi as his special servants in place of the firstborn of the Israelites, so they had no excuse for offering their children. The Bible's repeated condemnation of child sacrifice shows God's hated of it, especially among his people. So this idea that there's this clash between um, the idea of, like that the old world idea of sacrifice, the necessity of, of blood sacrifice itself and death to appease gods, uh, becoming insufficient in the eyes of Israelites. Um, something maybe like the moral code that God gave Moses actually implementing, seeping into the culture slowly over time. So that what you see is slowly over time, these cultural practices start to fade because you have these two groups forming, one based on a new type of morality and one based on an old one, new and old worlds colliding, right? Asherah has, was worshipped in different in various ways, including through ritual sex. 
Although she was believed to be Baal's mother, she was also his mistress. It was incestual. You see how all of these characteristics of the beast itself exist within the Baal and the characters that Baal consumes? Pagans practiced sympathetic magic. That is, they believed they could influence the gods' actions by performing the behavior they wished the gods to demonstrate. Believing the sexual union of Baal and Asherah produced fertility, their worshippers engaged in immoral sex to cause the gods to join together, ensuring good harvest. So there was this idea that there was a necessity for, for promiscuity in order to appease the gods, that the gods wanted, or there was an, it was necessary in some way. This practice became the basis of, for religious prostitution. The priest or a male member of the community represented Baal. The priestess or a female member of the community represented Asherah. In this way, God's incredible gift of sexuality was perverted to the most obscene public prostitution where people would have sex in public in these big, large rituals. No wonder God's anger burned against his people and their leaders. This is his own opinion, right? Now, this is interesting. I think this is very relevant, so I'm going to keep reading this, okay? Let's keep on going on this, and we'll comment a little later. Many, if not all, of the Old Testament gods had disappeared, at least in name, by the time of Jesus. Beelzebub, based on the Philistine god of Baalzebub, Baal, <laughs> is in the root word of Beelzebub, had become a synonym for the prince of demons, Satan. So this is where the connection lies, right? Many of the ancient pagan deities lived on, however, now identified with the gods of Greeks and Romans, the nations who controlled the people of Israel before and during New Testament times. It is not appropriate here to discuss all the gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman pantheon. However, a few of them were significant in the first century, and some are even mentioned by name in the Bible. Here we go, guys. This is where it gets freaky. The leader of the gods, Zeus, Jupiter, in the Romans, by the Romans, it was just a different name for Zeus, took on the role of Baal, the god of weather or storms, Artemis, the goddess of childbirth and fertility, and Aphrodite, the goddess of love, continued the Shira cults under a new name. So these Asherah cults transferred into a new name, but with worship practices that were as immoral as ever. So they continued the same practices, but changed the name of it, right? It is said that in Corinth alone, there were more than a thousand prostitutes in Aphrodite's temple. Hades, the Greek god of the underworld, became the namesake for the place of the dead and even for hell itself. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus referred to the gates of Hades or the underworld, believed by some of the grotto at Caesarea Philippi. This is an actual place where they believe there was gates to hell. Um, this was in, in Greece, right? You can visit this, but there, there was this actual grotto that they believe were the actual physical gates to hell that you could visit, um, from which one of the sources of the Jordan River came. The grotto itself was a part of a temple complex used in the worship of the Greek god, Greek god Pan. Now, Pan is also very interesting. Let's look up Pan. Pan is known as a trickster. Pan is a trickster spirit, very similar and, and usually associated with a goat. So Pan, um, let me let me see, Pan, Greek god. I'm gonna freak you out here real quick. Look at what he looks like. <laughs> For those of you that are listening, Pan is a Greek god that's associated with guarding the entry to the underworld. What Pan looks like is something like a mixture, a half man, half goat, with horns coming from his head and hooves for feet. The best way you could probably think of this is in that Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe movie, The Chronicles of Narnia, the uh, figure that is their kind of moral conscience or whatever that, that, that they meet as soon as they go through the door is a Pan. It's a trickster figure. Um, in the image of Pan, actually, you can see in the movies that it has this goat, human-goat hybrid idea, right? But that pan, let me go back here. 
in Greek mythology, um, let, me, let me go to this one. We're just keep with Wikipedia, right? In ancient Greek mythology, religion and mythology, Pan is the god of the wild, shepherds and flocks, nature of the mountain wilds, rustic music, and impromptus, promptus and companion of the nymphs, which are kind of tricksters. He was he has the head, hindquarters, legs, and horns of a goat in the same manner as a fawn or satyr. With his homeland in rustic Arcadia, he is also recognized as the god of fields, groves, wooden glens, and often affiliated with sex. Because of this, Pan is connected to fertility and the season of spring. The ancient Greeks also considered Pan to be the god of theatrical criticism, so uh, the critic itself. The word panic ultimately derives from the god's name. Panic is a sudden sensation of fear. (laughs) In Roman religion and myth, look at the guy's face in this. Panic is a sudden sensation of fear which is so strong as to dominate or prevent reason and logical thinking, replacing it with overwhelming feelings of anxiety and frantic agitation consistent with an animalistic fight-or-flight reaction. In Roman religion and myth, Pan's counterpart was Faunus, a nature god who is the father of Bonadea, sometimes identified as Fauna. Fauna refers to nature, like low-lying, right, like uh, greenery. Uh, He was also closely associated with Sylvanus due to the similar relationships with woodlands in the 18th and 19th centuries. Pan became a significant figure in romantic movement of Western Europe and also in the 20th century neo-pagan movement. The worship of Pan became in, began in Arcadia, which was also always the principal seat of his worship. Arcadia was a district of mountain people culturally separated from other Greeks. Arcadia hunters used to scourge the statue of the god if they had been disappointed in chase. So if they didn't get what they wanted and hunt-wise, they would they would uh, like strike or score the, the god's face. Being a rustic god, Pan was not worshipped in temples or other built edifices, but in natural settings, usually caves or grottos, such as the one in the north slope of the Acropolis of Athens. These are often referred to as the Cave of Pan. The only exceptions are the Temple of Pan on the Nita River Gorge in the southeast Peloponnese, the ruins of which survive to this day in the Temple of Pan, uh, at Apollonis Magna in ancient Egypt in the 4th century BC, Pan was depicted on the coinage. So he's a, he's a very popular figure as well, but this idea of um, Pied Piper too, you see him a lot of times with these flutes that he uh, kind of, like I said, the stricture kind of uh, coy identity as well. Anyway, we were just reading how this was related, right, to that Pan... It was very, in a weird way, it was very related to the Greek god, um, to the entry of the underworld, which the underworld was related to the the Greek god Hades himself, which was, uh, at some point it looks like, incorporated into the idea of Baal, as well as the idea of Zeus. So there is this singular... It's it's like this convergence. It's like where there's this 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 distillation where all of the negative aspects of the different gods that had ruled through sacrifice were consolidated into the idea of one for the Canaanites themselves, at least. Uh, Pan was depicted as an ugly man with horns, legs, and ears of a goat. Many stories about him refer to sexual affairs. The worship practices of his followers were no different. Pan was associated with Dionysus the Greek god of wine and orgies, whose worshippers continued many of the sexual rites of the Old Testament gods of the Baal cult. So this is where it connects, right? Is the the same rituals, right? The same kind of ideas of having sexual intercourse being something that calls into being gods themselves or what you want out of the gods um, transfers into the pan identity as well and the same type of worship. 
Dionysus was worshipped in the pagan Decapolis across the Sea of Galilee from the center of Jesus' ministry. So this was kind of a, I guess it appears a period at the same as contemporary to Jesus. Clearly, though, the names of the gods had changed. The people's worship practices is not. So like the, you see this morphing of the names of the gods, but the practices themselves saying the same. And so that what's happened over time is we have multiple associations we have multiple archetypes for the idea of the same thing, each represented in slightly different forms, with each of them with their own pros and cons. What that had been distilled into over time, ultimately, was Beelzebub or Satan or Lucifer, one whole identity containing nothing but the negative qualities of all of those deities, one central force, evil. Many ancient peoples practiced magic. They foretold the future by examining animal entrails or by watching lights of birds. The Greeks had oracles, shrines where gods supposedly communicated the future to priests and priestesses. Demon possession was a topic of much fascination. Many sorcerers claimed to have the ability to cast out demons, as did some Pharisees, because the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament recognized the reality of the demonic world and condemned all of its practices. We can be sure that these practices continued and were a temptation to many. So... Let's go ahead and read his conclusion because we read so much of his work. What good work, too. This is very interesting. Conclusion. Though today our gods, such as money, power, and possessions, are less personalized than in ancient times, the temptations for us are no less enticing. We would do well to remember the complete powerlessness of the pagan gods, from Baal, Canaan's bloodthirsty fertility god, to Hades, Greek god of the underworld, to prevail against the one true god and his son, Jesus Christ. So this is very specific to his Christian religion, right? But... This does resonate with me, that I think there is some kind of deep argument here, that these relationships between these identities, these archetypes, they're, they're not separate throughout time. They developed in line and, and, and along with each other. So that if we move on from Ball, what I want to do now, guys, and I'm, I mean, this is going to be a little bit of a a weird kind of transition, but like I said, it's going to get a little conspiratorial, but I'm going to talk about something called Bohemian Grove. I'm going to talk about uh, Skull and Bones, which are both considered to be um, secret societies within the United States. Um, now, the existence of these societies is not debated. I can show you here through these Wikipedia uh, posts that there's many, it's been documented for many years, not only uh, through anecdotal evidence from, from actual, you know, photographical evidence kind of interviews that kind of stuff people have been going to these organizations these venues for hundreds of years one being bohemian grove and one being a community called skull and bones now here's the idea that i'm playing with guys because i know this is a lot of information to come at you and i'm trying to combine align a little bit of my own personal beliefs with a practical kind of explanation of some sort. So it's like, uh, I believe that what we have going on right now is something like the fall and decline of the United States as it is embodied now. That there are actual real political influencers right now calling for the dissolution of this union 
that I'm not wishing for that or hoping for that. And I'm not trying to influence any of my listeners to want that either. But what I am arguing for is the weird congruencies that the United States itself, and I've argued for this for a long time, is based on the idea of the individual. It's based on the idea of you as a being being special. Your ideas, your ability to connect the eternal and the physical worlds together being special, unique in some way, and necessary. That that's the idea that this that the United States was founded on. That that idea, the sanctity of life, the morality that springs from it was based in the Western Christian religions. That the Declaration stated this overtly by saying all men are created equal under God. And that what we have done over the centuries is undermine the foundation through which our system is based. And that what that has produced and the means through which we've done that is through these secret societies. And that's why I'm bringing them up. We've undermined the belief system through which we manifest individuality. Belief in good itself. Belief in the primacy of good, of a morality of sorts. That what has happened in the United States, I believe, is a consolidation, an inevitable consolidation of power. And I don't want to say that as if I'm talking about, as if power is the only thing that exists. But what I mean by that is that the imperfect nature of our system and our inability to recognize that has led us to a place where small factions of people hold large large amounts of power. And this isn't new. This has happened for a long time, right? That one of the things the United States depends on is everybody being good actors in some sense that is a participant in that system. So that what has happened with these secretive societies is an establishment of a new type of foundation through which a ruling class can be lifted up. Through which people who believe they are superior to you and me can make decisions under the auspices of democracy. Using democracy as a shield, leveraging the system, which has been manipulated for hundreds of years through leveraging, manipulating individuals in these groups to push it more towards something like a worship of old gods. And this isn't just a trivial matter that I'm not making this up in like the, in a conspiratorial way that Skull and Bones is associated with some very dangerous ideas that the origination of Skull and Bones most believe comes from something like it was comes from Germany it was associated with Nazi Germany at some point that the Skull and Bones is a pagan is a pagan organization that one of the ways in which Skull and Bones initiates its members is through um, a form of hazing and humiliation blackmail so that uh, the only way you can join the organization is to reveal something about yourself that is so damning that if it was ever revealed to the world, it would end you. So that each of the individuals inside the system of Skull and Bones, members of which have been the most powerful people that have lived over the last 200 years, presidents, statesmen, businessmen, go down the list, you'll find all of them at some level involved in these organizations. What they have done, I think, is created and constructed an altar to the old gods. Uh, through 
continuing the practices, these pagan rituals that I was just describing. Now, we're out of music here, guys. It's because I still want to talk about this and I think it's a good topic. So in the audio version of the podcast, there's still going to be music here. I'll edit it and add some more for you guys. But in the video version, apologies, just going to be for me for the rest of it. Okay. But let's continue on here. So um, there's this idea that uh, uh, the sacrifice idea has been carried forward as well. Um, But there's an undermining of the Christian Western values that has gone on not only for the in the modern world, but has been going on behind the scenes, I think, in a sadistic way or in, a, in an insidious way for hundreds of years. And it's backed up by the existence period of these organizations. Skull and Bones, also known as the Order, Order 322 or the Brotherhood of Death, is an undergraduate senior secret student society at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. The oldest senior class society at the university, Skull and Bones has become a cultural institution known for its powerful alumni and various conspiracy theories. It is one of the big three societies at Yale and the other two being Scroll and Key and Wolf's Head Society. The society's alumni organization, the Russell Trust Organization Association, owns the organization's real estate and oversees the membership. The society is known formally as Bones and the members are known as Bonesmen. If you've ever watched, uh, there's a movie that's really good to watch if you want to kind of see the idea of this. It's in The Good Shepherd. Um, uh, Very good movie that, that has kind of a little bit of a it covers this in, in good depth and kind of gives you an image of what the society looks like, but um, the history of it. So Skull and Bones was founded in 1832 after a dispute among Yale debating societies. And the, uh, these two societies over the season's Phi Beta Kappa Awards, uh, they founded the, they co-founded the Order of the Skull and Bones. Uh, the first senior members included Russell Taft and 12 other members. Alternate names for the Skull and Bones are the Order, Order 322 and Brother of Death. Brotherhood of Death. Uh, their symbol is this skull and bones that you can see right there. Um, the, full, the first extended description of skull and bones published in 1871 by Lyman Bagg in his book Four Years at Yale noted that the mystery now attending its existence forms the one great enigma which college gossip never tires of discussing. He attributed the uh, interest in Yale senior societies to the fact that the underclassmen members of the freshman, sophomore, and junior class societies returned to campus the following years and could share information about society rituals while graduating seniors were, with their knowledge of such, at least a step forward from the campus life. So it was this way of people initiating into kind of uh, higher echelons of society, right? Um, the Skull and Bones Hall is otherwise known as the tomb. The building was uh, built in three phases. And the first being, so this is idea, of, it's very, very dark, right? This idea of association with death in this organization. Um, they also own uh, something called the Deer Island, which was where they would have, uh, where they have their organizational meetings. The society owns and manages Deer Island, an island retreat on the St. Louis River. Um, the 40-acre retreat is intended to give bonesmen an opportunity to get together and rekindle old friendships. A century ago, the island sported tennis courts and its softball fields is surrounded by rhubarb plants and gooseberry bushes. Uh, so this, it's a very beautiful place, right? Um, but the idea is... Oh, Lord, let's read this. The number 322 appears in Skull and Bones insignia and is widely reported to be significant as the year of Greek order Demosthenes. Demosthesis? I can't remember. Death. A letter between early society members in Yale archives suggests that 322 is a reference to the year 322 BCE and that members measure dates from this year instead of from the common era. They don't recognize the common era, right? That's kind of weird, right? In 322 BC, the Lamian War ended with the death of Demosthenes, and Athenians were made to dissolve their government and establish a plutocratic system in its stead, whereby only those possessing 2,000 drachmas or more could remain citizens. Documents in the tomb have reportedly been found dated to the Anno Demosthene. Member measures time by day according to a clock five minutes out of sync with the normal time. The latter is called barbarian time. So they they 
misalign their clocks, they operate under a different set of rules than general society. Uh, they're also known for stealing keepsakes. One of the ways that they would keep uh, members in line is by initiating through having them steal very significant, very expensive, priceless artifacts. Um, and there's also obviously the rumors, a deeper rumor about the club is that the group Skull and Bones is featured in books and movies, which claims that the society plays a role in global conspiracy for world control. This is more what I'm getting at. And this is the more conspiratorial aspect that, yes, there's no way for me to prove any of this that I'm talking about, right? Without a doubt that there's a conspiracy to control the minds and the lives of the individuals to undermine democracy itself in insidious ways, um, to set up a faux democracy in some sense, in which uh, the people, the masses, are lulled into a certain type of slumber in which they can be controlled. Um, I think this is the point that we're coming to here. And I think it's one of the reasons why we're experiencing so much chaos and confusion in the modern world, because I believe there's a crossing over of these, these secret societies in the modern world, the actual world that we're seeing in broad daylight, um, that there's power at play that we haven't recognized yet, that the, in this weird way, there's an illogical, something about the current events doesn't make sense. The chaos that's happening, there's a disorder that's, the disorder that's happening and like the, the lack of any kind of true orientation within it is this, um, I think, indicative of deeper motives at play, ones that aren't being revealed to us. Now, one of the freaky things about Skull and Bones is Skull and Bones, as being one of the, the more uh, the oldest societies in U.S. history, um, many of its members were former U.S. presidents, um, like I said, powerful people in the United States. Um, there's another group called Bohemian Grove, uh, and it's not a group necessarily, but it's an, it's an organization that has meetings um, that again similar uh, in design to skull and bones but more um seems like more more about or bringing people in from all around the world the most influential people into one small circle whereas skull and bones is kind of focused on only the most powerful people it's something like that there's a differentiation between the two but anyway they intermingle as well that many of the members the presidents that are members of skull and bones or have been members of skull and bones have appeared at bohemian grove uh often and now what occurs at bohemian grove is very odd because it's uh um it's been described by many different people uh, one of them being alex jones he's one of his most famous things he's done was uh I believe in the early 2000s, he actually snuck into one of the Bohemian Grove meetings and videoed it. And that what he found when he did that was that there's a pagan ritualistic nature uh, in these groups, in, in at least the Bohemian Grove organization that I'll try to describe to you here because it's a little freaky in how it connects to the old pagan gods that we were just talking about and says why I'm bringing it up. So... Tradition, rituals, and symbols. The club's patron saint is John of Nepomuk, who, according to legend, suffered death at the hands of Bohemian monarchs rather than discloses confessional secrets of the queen. So this idea of secrecy being supreme is very big in these, these secret societies. A large wood carving of St. John is in cleric robes and his index finger over his lips stands at the shore of the lake in the grove. So a hush-hush, right? Symbolizing the secrecy kept by the grove's attendees throughout its long history. And there's pictures of this place too here. There's videos that that Alex Jones took that you can watch if you want to. Since the founding of the club, the Bohemian Grove's mascot has been an owl. 
symbolizing wisdom. Now, this is one interpretation of what the owl symbolizes. A 30-foot-long hollow owl statue made out of concrete over steel support standing at the head of the lake in the grove. The statue was designed by sculptor and two-time club president Haig Patagon and was constructed in the 1920s. Um, so since 20, 1929, the Owl Shrine has served as the backdrop for the yearly cremation of care ceremony. Now, this is the thing that I'm going to focus on here because the ceremonies that they are doing around these owls, these shrines, are so similar to the pagan rituals that were going on between all of these other paganistic gods that it's it's hard to deny that... The creation of care ceremony is a theatrical production in which some of the club's members participate as actors. It was first conducted in 1881. The production was devised by James F. Bowman, with George T. Bromley playing the high priest. It was originally set up within the plot of the serious high jinx dramatic performance on the first weekend of the summer encampment, after which the spirit of the care slain by the jinx hero was solemnly cremated. The ceremony served as the catharsis for the pent-up high spirits and to present symbolically the salvation of the trees by the club. The cremation of care was separated from the grove plays in 1913 and moved to the first night to become an exercising of the demon to ensure the success of the ensuing two weeks. The grove play was moved to the last week of the encampment. Now I want to read you a little bit about what this owl is called. The, another name for the owl uh, that they just described here is Molech. And Molech is an old god similar and associated to in some ways with Baal and Satan and these other dark entities. Now, I want to kind of read you where this, how this um, relates. This is going to be another article from redlandsdailyfacts.com. This is by uh, Arthur, author not listed, right? Just looks like by, by the editors. Um, that the Hebrew God is the best known of all gods worshipped in the world today needs no ex explanation. The Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims, among others, all accord the ancient Hebrew God their devotion. Whatever else those three faiths might say, they would agree with Psalms 95.3 that the Lord is great God and great King above all gods. So this idea of the supremacy of one God. But God is not and has not been without his rivals, even in antiquity. Even in the pages of the Hebrew Bible, there are many alternatives to the Lord God of Israel. And in this article, we will consider three of the now largely forgotten deities who once opposed him, who alone is great. Perhaps the best known ancient rival to the Hebrew gods was the pagan Baal, a term which means master or lord, and has probably originated a general term for a variety of local deities in the area in and near the Holy Land. An example of a local Baal cult is called Baal Peor, mentioned in Numbers 25.3, where the Israelites disgraced themselves in some sexual rites with the Moabites and worshipped the local god, incurring the wrath and punishment of their own god. Over the centuries, however, the cults of the Baalim, became merged and several special larger cults developed. The best known of these was the cult of the Syrian god Melkart, worshipped by King Ahab of Israel and his wicked wife Jezebel. We've seen these characters pop up before, right? This is weird. It was this Israelite worship of Baal, which, has challenged by, which was challenged by the Hebrew prophet Elijah in his famous conflict with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, when he challenged the false prophets to bring down fire from heaven. When the prophets of Baal failed to do so, Elijah's God did so, resulting in the slaughter of the prophets of Baal by an angry mob. But the worship of the God was not so easily extinguished. The God or gods called Baal normally required the sacrifice of children, which we've talked about, often the firstborn male child, the sacrifice by fire. 
It was, it has been suggested that the famous story of Abraham's sacrifice of his son Isaac, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son and then forbade the sacrifice at the last moment, was told to the ancients as a dramatic and instructive narrative which commanded the Hebrews not to follow the pagan cults of the land. Don't sacrifice in that way. It's like, it was something like, make the, make the sacrifice yourself, right? We talked about this yesterday. It was as it, or the other day, it was as if to say that even the great patriarch himself did not sacrifice his son, but it was only a test of his faith. And so two good Hebrews must not follow the practice of the people of the land, however tempted they were. In post-biblical archaeology, we note that the cult of Baal was taken by the Phoenicians in North Africa, where he is worshipped by the Car- Car- Carthagian peoples. We are not surprised to find his name incorporated into the name of the Carthagian general Hannibal, who who harried Fabius Maximus and the generals of Rome with his wonderful elephants. In any event, Baal's cult came to an abrupt end with the Roman sack of Carthage in 146 BC. Another popular goddess worshipped in the days of the Bible was Ashtaroth, a deity associated with sexuality and fertility and by some people's war. He was probably tied to the Mesopotamian cult of Ishtar, which in turn was probably derived from the very ancient Sumerian mother goddess Inanna. The Hebrew Bible also called this this same goddess Astarte. The ancient Hebrew prophets denounced her cult many times, most likely because she was worshipped with sexual fertility rites. Certainly, her cult predated the Hebrews by many centuries, and when the Philistines slaughtered Saul, the first king of Israel, they could think of no better tribute than to place his battle armor in her temple as a tribute. That's on Samuel 31.10. Many new statues of, of her have been uncovered by archaeologists, and the Bible refers to her fertility poles or rods on many occasions. So that there's a fertility roller. Uh, the, what they're talking about, the fertility poles and rods, these are like ancient sex toys that they've found. That this is literally the god of sex itself and playing with yourself. Right, and that there's figures, figurines that the figure is often um, is often depicted with like a phallus type uh, rod or something. Her cult must have been very popular, as it even swayed or corrupted the heart of wise King Solomon, Solomon's temple, for which he was criticized in Kings eleven five. So you see how the, all of these are interplaying with each other in a very intricate manner that often is not identified. Poor King Solomon was also led astray by the third of the favorite pagan gods of the land, Molech. Now this is the one we we're just talking about to whom he raised an altar near Jerusalem. Although the Bible tells us that God twice warned him not to, and in punishment for his, for this, his heir would be deprived of 10 of the tribes of his great kingdoms. We'd split his kingdom in half. Now that's in uh, 1 Kings 11.10. Molech was a god of the Ammonite peoples. His name seems to be tied to the Hebrew word Melech, which means king. What does Baal mean? Lord. Which in turn suggests he was an elder god, perhaps the Akkadian deity Mulek. Like Baal, his cult may have been transported to Carthage, where he was worshipped as the god Molech until the servants of Olympian gods pulverized ancient Carthage. All right, so when Carthage fell, then it was kind of the temples of this god finally fell, and I'm sure were transformed or transmorphed into something else. The Hebrew Bible was quite fierce in its denunciation of Molech. Not simply, like, this is one of the biggest, like, idols that was preached against was Molech, Baal. These were the idols. These were the, this was the devil before the identity of the devil existed in the way we know it today. Not simply because of the sin of idolatry, but also because of this, these are the figures that created the archetype of the modern Satan himself. All of these combined. The Hebrew Bible was was quite fierce in its denunciation of Moloch, not simply because of the sin of idolatry, but also because of the custom of the worshippers of Moloch of sacrificing children to the god by fire. 
What did we just read Baal did? The Hebrew prophet Jeremiah describes with horror the ancient rites, telling us that God says they built high places in Baal in the valley of Beth Hinnom and immolated their sons and daughters to Molech, bringing sin upon Judah. This I never commanded them, nor did it enter my mind that they should practice such abominations. Jeremiah 32, 35. The Hebrew God reacted very strongly to this kind of worship. The Torah on several occasions commands the death penalty for anyone worshiping him. The text tells us that tell the Israelites, anyone, whether an Israelite or an alien residing in Israel who gives any of his offerings to Molech shall be put to death. Let his fellow citizens stone him. I, God myself, will turn against such a man and cut him off from the body of his people. For in giving his offspring to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. It's Leviticus 22 through 3. It must have been terrifying and tempting thing to the peoples of antiquity when they saw the impressive temples of the pagan gods, the loud music, the professional priesthoods, and their claims that such blood sacrifices and exotic fertility rites could make people's lives better, the Hebrew god by comparison spent a lot of his career with a solitary ark drawn around in a cart. Later, he had but few holy places for sacrifices. In the days of Solomon, they were concentrated only into one temple in Jerusalem. So at this time, these were the dominant religions. What people were worshiping all around the world in this area, at least in this area of the world, was these kind of pagan religion idols. Sacrifice was the rule of the land. That the Hebrew God was was actually the, the rare, it was the oddity. It was considered dangerous. And because of that, it was the center of debate and violence and a series of overthrows of the Temple Mount itself throughout history, right? Very, very sacred spot for uh, Jews themselves and Christians. For that reason, the Hebrew God, by comparison, spent a lot of his career with a solitary arch on a cart. He had but a few holy places, and that's where I left off. And in the days of Solomon, these were concentrated into only one temple, which is why the Temple of Solomon was so so important and why its overthrow was so important. But the humble worship of the Hebrew God, who had no images, ritual tattoos, and who rejected child sacrifice, survived. So even though the the, the it was essentially whittled down to like nothing but a small sect of people that believed in this at one point. The images of Baal and Ashtaroth and Moloch are, to, are today viewed primarily by board school, school children in museums. So like, essentially the idea is that the, the idea of the Hebrew God, the singular God at one point was so rare that it was, it was hard to find in the land period. Uh, that from that rock bottom of sorts, all of these gods ended up being consumed by the one true God in this idea, right? To the electron, uh, so that's that's a really good and again that's a very that's a very good one i like this uh gregory elder yeah he's a professor of history and humanities at riverside community college you can write to him at professing faith p.o box 8102 redlands california 92375 or send email to gnyssa at verizon.net thank you very much uh, for that article there, Mr. Elder, that was very interesting. And um, but you see how the connections here, right? That these these essentially what we have is different people in little pockets, little tribal groups throughout ancient uh, history, identifying similar aspects that, when they practiced them, seemed to produce upward movement in their society. But that in the ancient, most ancient of times. The necessity for that upward movement was something like blood sacrifice. You see this in Aztec religions as well, right? That there is this idea that you needed to bloodlet in order to appease the gods. And that when you did that, that's when that's when 
prosperity came, that these characteristics of the gods being somewhat hungry and, and, and greedy in some sense transferred among, that these this identity was identified in different places and called different things, but it's the same thing. We figured that out slowly over time with all of these different identities clashing with each other. So it's like, oh, this is the same thing, let's combine that. Oh, this is the same thing, let's combine that. Oh, this is the same thing, let's combine that until we get to a singular idea of Satan. Same idea with God itself, with all of the positive attributes, this dwindling down into a singular idea, something like an evolution of sorts, right? But that what I think is happening, and we're going to get back to the Bohemian Grove, is that Bohemian Grove, they have statues and perform rituals, not actual human sacrifice, but symbolic versions of the old rituals in which human sacrifice, children were sacrificed to the owl god Molech, is repeated every time they do a ceremony at Bohemian Grove. Not only, this isn't just anecdotal, that there's, there's, there's video evidence of this, right? That's one of the things Alex Jones did was went and videoed this ceremony. And I have a picture for you pulled up of what that looks like. And this is an actual picture of the owl here in Bohemian Grove. These are some of the figures surrounding him. You can see that they're wearing cloaks, dark cloaks, things like that. Paganistic symbols down here. And then you have the owl Molech here. Now, what's being depicted here is the burning of the effigy, the child that they just described. But what they use, and it shows in Alec Jones' videos, I'll try to actually find the video of the full things and post it so you guys can watch it. But what you'll see in that video is they bring up kind of like in a, uh, they bring the sacrifice itself and it's this, this effigy of a child. And it's not a real child, but it's like a twig version of a child, you know, um, where they, they make like a representation of the body of a child and twigs. And then they burn the effigy in front of the owl, Molech. That is the exact same process through which was ha that was happening in in uh, the Middle East during Jesus's time and before that time, before the the advent of, of modern Christianity. That this was what was was. This is the reason why Christianity came into being to begin with. Period that it preached against this kind of ritualistic nature, the sacrifice, uh, the, 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 the idea that human being is something that is, is, is not co-creator, like I was just describing yesterday with the, the supreme being, but something like, um, and I'm, I don't say that in meaning that you are a God, but it's like the love that that aspect entails, like you are created from the eye of God. Why would it want harm come from you? If God created you, why would you want, why would they want, why would God want to harm you kind of a thing, right? Uh, in that way. Like, why would he want death to the thing that brings novelty? So it's like this, this confounding nature within the idea. So that up pops Christianity in an evolutionary sense to kind of push back against this thing that was keeping people tribal. This is the practical side. These different compartmentalized ideas of the same thing that people were worshiping was what was keeping tribalism itself in the Middle East a thing. And consolidation, wars that we just described in 4 BC, wars like you've never seen thousands, tens of thousands of individual wars going at the same time because you had all of these individual groups not only having different kind of physical uh, barriers between each other, right? Like, hey, we're, we're at at odds because we're fighting over the same resources, that kind of thing, but also a deep spiritual thing that, hey, we believe in a God, 
has this characteristics. You believe in a God has this characteristics. You call them something different than we call them, right? Uh, we're also enemies in the other way I just described. And the only way that I'm going to, it's like it ratchets up the sacrifice part. Cause like, how do you bring fruition? How do you appease the gods? If you actually believe that God exists, well, you sacrifice more. So it has this child eating quality. <laughs> As we saw on Saturn and the idea of Satan and Pan and Lucifer, all the, like you see this child eating quality where it's literally the human being consuming themselves. That is propagated by paganism in this, this worship of different idols among tribal regions. That that is the practicality behind the development of Christianity and the supremacy of one divine being. It is why it developed in the Middle East. Uh, and that it is also, I believe, and this is what I've been trying to get to, guys, apologies for how long this has been, but what I believe is happening with Bohemian Grove, Skull and Bones, and these secret organizations that are attempting, I believe, to delete or reinvigorate the old idea of the pagan gods. What I find eerie about that as well is how it aligns to 4 BC. Remember, we have to bring this all back to what we started talking about at the beginning of this podcast, the Christmas star. What's about to happen on the 21st? And what was happening the last time we saw that sucker? Or at least the last time it held this kind of relevance? You tell me that's a coincidence. That these things aren't interrelated in the way I just tried to outline and I hope I did a good job of. But that you can see in these figures, these effigies. Here's another one of Moloch. The slightly different picture of an owl, but you see the horns there, right? There's a star here in the middle with an all-seeing eye, right? Um, very interesting depiction there, but I mean, you can keep going with this. You look at, um, I mean, depictions of of uh, Ball, right? Um, Ball, image of Ball. I'll show you that really quick before we move on. We had it pulled up before. Look what ball looks like. Right? Human figure with a whole head of a bull and horns of a bull. Right? The horns seeming to be kind of a defining feature that's transferred between them. This is kind of the modern image of ball right here. He has the goat head, has the pentacle in the middle of his forehead where the all-seeing eye usually is, is depicted. Uh, you have the horns... You have the fallen angel wings in the background. You have the double snake at the middle, which is usually meant to, to symbolize health and prosperity. You have two fingers in this formation pointing up to God in some way, almost challenging his supremacy and then like mocking it in some way. And then you have uh, two children on either side of him. What does Baal do? these children. Finally, let's look at an image of Satan. I mean, literally, it's the image of Satan is so closely associated with Baal that that's pulled up. That image, the same image I was just looking up when I typed in a picture of Baal. Here's another one. There you go, right? Same image. 
It's very, it's, it, it, there's something deep, deep going on here, right? Some kind of deep interaction that these things are having, that these ideas are having, that is coming to fruition right now. And I believe is centered around this kind of alignment, this astrological alignment, astro that this connects to some kind of energetic force that's happening right now. And it's hard to, for me to describe. And I'm going to kind of try to end it here, folks, because I don't want to go rambling on too long and I'm still trying to put together what all this means but I'm going to try to enunciate it here at the very end for what I think is happening here I think a similar process to what we've seen happen historically in other time frames when these kind of congruencies were also aligned I think is what we're, we're in a similar time frame here the alignment of Jupiter and Saturn is something like the representation of those two archetypes colliding the deity of a singular you know Saturn it's or uh, Jupiter itself being identified as the king of kings kind of and then the the saturn being associated with this paganism this ritualistic nature this time itself with eating of humanity with uh, uh logical thinking with in some ways stemming from that ego right and uh and then we actually have documented worship of this going on by organizations who are the most influential and powerful in our society that we know of and that what's happening objectively if you look out into the world right now in the u.s is something like chaos and calamity the same kind of calamity that we saw represented in 4 bc the last time that we were able to see this kind of alignment happening in our night sky so that what comes after this is something like a clash of those two ideas that's what's happening here energetically the clash of those two worlds again in order to define or call out of the human being something like a divine identity that's been lost, an evolution of sorts, something like that. I don't know and I haven't gone far enough to really figure out what that is, but that's kind of where I'm at. And I wanted to take these couple hours, which I've, this is definitely the longest one we've done, guys, but I wanted to take this time to, to, to go through some of this stuff with you guys because, um, like I said, it's a complicated idea um, that I think deserves to be talked about right now it is necessary we talk about this because things are changing in this world and i think we're about to have some surprises so that being said i hope you enjoyed this episode of the unfounded podcast um i did pull up some extra uh, articles in this um so i will be posting those or updating the link descriptions so you can find all of this information in the link description it's a little it's not as pretty organizationally right now because i'm still figuring out the formatting and stuff but anyway it's there for you if you want to check it out yourself um also before i let you go guys if you do enjoy the podcast uh, and you want to help me in any way the best thing you could do for me to help grow this podcast is to go onto your platform and to give me a review right um what that does is it allows it demonstrates to the platform that there's a higher level engagement at this podcast and then that helps me in the algorithmic finding of the podcast how other people go about finding my podcast puts me higher on the list there right so if you like this and you think it's a message that deserves to be a little higher on the list in some sense uh go review the podcast uh give it whatever you honestly think the podcast is worth and give me your legit review I'm not asking for all five stars just asking for your honest thoughts right uh, so leave me some comments um if you listen on an Apple, Apple is usually the most influential in that. But if not, no worries. Whatever podcast platform you use is more than appreciated. Uh, at the same time, if you feel like you want to donate in any way, please visit my Patreon page. Um, as always, that is up there for you. And um, 
I've been getting a lot of in, uh, interaction on my Facebook page and my Instagram page. And many of you may have seen on my Instagram page that I'm starting to produce my own type of motivational work. And I started with that as above, so below uh, picture. So um, that's kind of a sample of what's to come. I'm going to try to do one of those every day or every other day. And the podcast itself uh, will be uh, a little more structured uh, moving forward. I'm going to watch this, see how it went. Um, see what I can adjust, but uh, I want to give you guys a little more structure. I want to do a little more research prior uh, to what I'm to diving into these topics, so that I'm a little, uh, so that we're we have a little more foundation on what we're arguing here, moving forward. Um, so. That being said, guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you very much for joining me here on this Saturday afternoon, and I will be seeing you guys very soon. Lots of love. Bye-bye.